Welcome to Done With Debauchery, a sobriety and wellness podcast where you'll hear honest experiences about navigating life and relationships without alcohol, how to pursue your own personal wellness journey, and share intimate conversations with special guests. I'm your host, Keisha Scott. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Done With Debauchery. I cannot believe that we're officially on a Christmas countdown. I honestly feel like the last month has just flown by, and I am in no way prepared for the fact that Christmas is only four days away. I just bought my first Christmas gifts yesterday for my two nieces, Luckily, um, it was express shipping, so they actually arrived today, so they will have presents from me for Christmas. The last few weeks have been really busy for me, and you may have noticed that there was no episode last week. That was not something that was intentional. I really wanted to put an episode out, but didn't have time to put together a thoughtful or meaningful episode. And I really like all of the Done With Debauchery episodes to have a purpose. I'm not putting out content just for the sake of putting it out. It really does come from my heart. So yeah, unfortunately last week we skipped an episode, but I'm back this week and I have one more episode next week for you just to wrap up the end of the year and to lead us into dry January. I also feel like I've been a little absent from the Done With Debauchery Instagram and TikTok pages. And again, it's not something that is intentional. I just feel like the last month has been so crazy. I've had other things going on in my personal life. I'm going through a job search for a new job and I've been having an insane amount of interviews. So that's taken up a lot of my time and really has had to take uh, priority over Instagram. But I do have some fun content that I'm going to be pushing out uh, over the next couple weeks before the holidays or before the end of the year. So keep your eyes open for that. As for what I've actually been up to, I recently planned and threw my holiday party. It was for Toronto sober girls and girls who are sober curious. It was such a hit. So that just took place this past Friday, December 16th. It was honestly so much fun. I will post some pictures and videos on Instagram, but it was such a an amazing night. All the women that came were so friendly. Everyone was so welcoming. I feel like everybody made new connections and new friendships. Total, it turned out to be about 15 women, but it was honestly the perfect amount like it gave us a chance to really be able to talk and have personal conversations and get to know the people that were there more than just a surface level it's so funny because the room that we had the party in was actually two rooms attached um it's a party room and one had a beautiful couch a fireplace and a couple chairs and then we had the kitchen where we set up all the food everybody brought something There was unlimited things to eat. We had unlimited desserts and then a full table of non-alcoholic drinks. So everybody obviously just flocked to the food and the drink area. So we had this huge wide open space for everyone to mix and mingle, but everyone stayed so tight in this small area, which I feel like 
everyone just wanted to be close to each other and just have that sense of community. And I feel like we really had it on Friday. So that was amazing. If you are in Toronto, you're sober or sober curious and you're interested in possibly attending something in the future, shoot me a message on Instagram at done with debauchery and I'll add you to my list. And I really hope that we can continue doing events like this because I think it means so much to the women, myself included, who are just looking for new connections with like-minded people. I also want to take a minute just to highlight some of the unbelievable non-alcoholic cocktails that we had at the party. So we had literally everything from ready-to-drink cans, non-alcoholic wine, non-alcoholic champagne, to a non-alcoholic rum punch that I made. So Ritual Zero Proof was actually kind enough to send me over bottles of their different non-alcoholic spirits. We had gin, tequila, whiskey, and a rum. So I chatted with my friend Sarah from Some Good Clean Fun, and she shared with me her recipe for a non-alcoholic rum punch. And let me tell you, this drink was delicious. I think it was like maybe one of the stars of the evening. I made a big batch of it. I like tripled the recipe and it was gone by the end of the night. Like it honestly delicious. It's made with like undiluted cranberry juice, apple cider, cinnamon, and this non-alcoholic rum. You garnish it with cranberries and, and I think I used Macintosh apples. It was the perfect holiday drink. If you're looking for something to make over the next week or so for a holiday gathering, I would definitely recommend this. I will link the recipe in my show notes because I feel like everyone needs to try it. On top of that, we also had Suzette from Drink, D-R-N-K, Beverage Company. She brought us some of her non-alcoholic mojitos and mules to try, which were unbelievably delicious. Emily from Clear Sips came and she brought a few different Odd Bird sparkling wines. So we had a rosé and I think the other one was the Spumante. Regardless, they were all delicious. And then just the girls that came brought non-alcoholic beers. We had Libra, Groovy, non-alcoholic wine, Smoky Bay. It was just like everything that you could have ever wanted to try somebody brought so it was just such a great tasting experience i feel like for people who are trying to find those different non-alcoholic options but are maybe hesitant to commit to a whole bottle and things like that so it was really fun i felt like we were also like it was like we were at a non-alcoholic wine tasting almost so the sober girls holiday party was friday night and then the next night I had my Christmas party with my group of girlfriends. And this was actually my very first time being the DD for a group. I have never been, <laughs> I've never been a designated driver primarily because I don't have a car, but also because usually I'm probably the one who was drinking the most in the past. So it was a really funny experience to be the only sober one driving my girlfriends home but of course it felt good to know they were getting home safe and that I had a part in that. So that was really fun. And as I've talked about before, my girlfriends are all really supportive of me choosing not to drink. So one of my girlfriends loves to bring all these different non-alcoholic drinks 
she'll often make, um, let's say it's like a picture of Margarita or Paloma for the girls. She'll make me my own small bottle of a non-alcoholic version. So she did that on Saturday night for me, which was really special. And then another girlfriend actually also brought me a bottle of Bottega non-alcoholic sparkling from the LCBO, which I was not expecting as at all. Like we're not really as close um, that I would think she would be bringing me my entire own bottle, but I thought that was really sweet. And she did share that when she was at the liquor store, she was picking up alcoholic beverages for the night, for the holidays, but then when she asked the cashier if she had any non-alcoholic options, apparently the cashier gave her quite the look and she said it took her aback, like she'd never experienced something like that and just felt that it was so odd to have that kind of reaction. So it's interesting that for people who do drink to try to get a little bit of an insight onto the things that we experience when we're choosing not to drink alcohol. So as I mentioned before, we are only four days away from Christmas and I felt like I should be putting out some kind of holiday PSA, (laughs) giving you some advice on how to survive the holidays and stay sober. But to be completely honest, I don't have that information because this is my first Christmas without drinking alcohol as well. So I didn't feel like it would be coming from a place of authenticity to try and say, okay, these are the things that you need to do to make it through when I'm just, I'm going through the experience for the first time myself. What I do know is that it's probably going to be challenging some days For me, I usually go home to Winnipeg and spend the holidays with my big family, my extended family, and it's constantly a push and pull, running around, trying to make sure I'm seeing everyone, fitting in all these visits. And I was feeling a lot of stress about going home for the holidays this year. I was having a really hard time trying to find out how to get my dog there without driving, which is over a 24-hour drive on icy roads. So ultimately, I decided to stay in Toronto for Christmas this year. And my mom, being the darling that she is, doesn't want to have Christmas away from each other. So she'll be flying in on Thursday to spend the holidays with me. We are going to be spending Christmas dinner at one of my girlfriend's houses um, and having the evening with her family. So although it's not a traditional Christmas for me, I am really looking forward to it. But I think that I'm also going to be, I'm I'm almost getting away with not seeing my family and not having those same drinking triggers because I'm not going to be home for the holidays. So going into it, as of today, I am 319 days alcohol-free. The first week of January will be my 11-month milestone, and I'm feeling good about my sobriety. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to be triggered over the Christmas holidays, but I do think it would be a really different experience if I was going home to Winnipeg. So for everyone who is going home for the holidays, and this is your first sober Christmas, or your second, or your third, or your tenth, like... 
you're not alone. There are going to be a lot of us facing some of the same challenges as you. Make sure to keep your sobriety toolkit and your resources close. Bring non-alcoholic drinks if you if that's something that you like to participate in. And yeah, just continue to lean into the things that make you feel good. Remember your why. Why are you not drinking? Why have you made this decision? <laughs> I guess I am sort of giving um, advice now, but this is just the same advice that I tell myself every day that keeps me from drinking alcohol. You can do it. You can do hard things. And I know that the holidays with family can be a very hard thing. So I am sending you my strength and I'm wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. For the second half of this episode, I'm joined for a second time by sobriety and mindset coach Amy C. Willis. Amy joined me on episode 30 to talk about why alcohol is a feminist issue. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend it. If you want to learn more about Amy's experience with alcohol abuse, what it was like growing up, and her life in sobriety now, you want to check out episode 30 because we don't get as deep into those details in this week's episode. This week, Amy and I are discussing substance use issues and addiction within the 2S LGBTQ community. Amy leads the conversation this week, and she brings a lived experience to the topic. On top of that, she brings facts and statistics that are alarming to hear. But this is a conversation that is important to have. Without further ado, let's get into it. Amy, welcome back to Done With Debauchery. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here again. Me too. Uh, and you're actually the first person to be on the show twice. <laughs> oh, I love that honor. Thank you. I'm so, I'm really glad to be here. I, I loved our last conversation. I'm super excited about this conversation. So it's a, it's an honor. Absolutely. Uh, so our last conversation was such a good one. We talked in great detail about alcohol as a feminist issue, how and why big alcohol companies are targeting women. But we just had so much more that we wanted to talk about. There was no time, which is why we're back here today, part two uh, of our beautiful conversation. Last episode, you did give us a really in-depth uh, look at who you are, your history with alcohol, your journey to sobriety, the work you're doing in the sober community. But for those who are listening for the first time, do you mind giving us a quick reintroduction? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So my name is Amy C. Willis. I use she, her pronouns. I am a sobriety and mindset coach who supports women and queer folks in really reclaiming their power and freedom through sobriety and building alcohol-free lives that they don't want to escape from. And I come to this work after struggling with a pretty severe alcohol addiction myself for many, many years, and also growing up in a home with a father who also had a really bad alcohol addiction. So I have been sober now for more than six years, which is 
the best thing that's ever happened in my <laughs> life. Congratulations again. Thank you. Um, I'm also a queer woman. And so I am really looking forward to this conversation and talking about some of the ways that substance use issues and addiction show up within the 2S LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, absolutely. So you brought up this topic and immediately I knew this was a conversation I wanted to have. And I feel like I wanted to have it with you specifically because you just articulate yourself so beautifully. You have so much information and knowledge to share. So thank you again for being here. And I would love for you to lead the conversation today and share the information that you feel like is pertinent and most important uh, to get out there. So I'm passing the mic over to you. (laughs) Exciting. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, as a queer woman and as a cis woman, I have had, you know, a very interesting and unique set of experiences as they relate to my addiction and my substance use issues. So I think it's really important as just a jumping off point to speak candidly and openly about the fact that rates of addiction and substance use in the LGBTQ plus community are significantly higher when we look at um, rates compared to the straight population. Mm -hmm. So 20 to 30% of the queer community deals with substance use and addiction issues compared to 9% of the cisgender heterosexual community. So that's that's a very notable difference, like 20 to 30 percent versus nine percent. Mm-hmm. So that's significant. Um, and I think that there are lots and lots of reasons for this, and I, I we can get into some of them here. So um, a significant one, and I can I can speak to this from my own experience. Um, I I was rejected by my family of origin for my queerness, Um, unrelated to, but still connected. Um, I was kicked out of my family home when I was 18 years old. And so um, I was, I experienced trauma and I would say minority stress in relation to my queerness that absolutely impacted how I moved through the world and how I then coped with that was with substances. So minority stress um, is a very significant issue for a lot of queer people. So we have higher rates of chronic stress. We live in a heteronormative world. We engage or not engage with, but have to endure ongoing stigma, discrimination, microaggressions, rejection and social isolation. social isolation, higher likelihood of concurrent mental health issues like anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation. So that's just like the the sort of tip of the iceberg. Um, and I think before going any further, it's also really important to acknowledge that even within the queer community, the 2S LGBTQ plus community, there's a lot of diversity. So what might be true for me as a cis queer woman 
is probably very different that um, in terms of uh, an experience with a trans person. And if you add additional um, sites of oppression onto that, so whether it's race, whether it's ability, whether it's class, um, it becomes even more complicated and it becomes even more likely that a substance use or addiction issue will arise. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the the jumping off point, which is a lot of information. So I think, you know, one of the things that we're seeing emerge more when it comes to how we're understanding um, substance use issues and addiction is the impact that trauma, particularly trauma earlier on in life, has on folks and the likelihood that they will develop an addiction later on in life. Mm-hmm. And so, we know now that trauma does increase one's propensity to develop an addiction. And when you then situate someone like a queer person in the equation who is already in experiencing a lot more trauma, you can see then how the road to substance use and addiction has kind of been laid out. And obviously there are other factors, there are protective factors you want to think about as well in that. So it's not just about the trauma. But that is certainly a key part of it. Um, yeah. And I think that, like, for me, a lot of the statistics that I've seen talks about queer adults or LGBTQ adults. So that has to start somewhere, like that addiction and that substance use. And, like, from your experience or perspective, do you think that this is something that is starting in adolescence? Absolutely. Um, And we are so we're seeing a lot more of it in terms of, yes, reaching for substances and also kids just experiencing more trauma, which Mm -hmm. then sort of speeds along the substance use issues. Um, I think things are changing. Like when I came out, it was almost 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And so I'm seeing changes and I'm seeing generally speaking, a lot more acceptance and celebration of diversity and and of queerness, which is really optimistic. Um, But yeah, a lot of it starts in in youth and during adolescent periods in people's lives. When people are the most vulnerable, like at those transformational ages, like you're so young, you're looking for support, you're already transitioning into adulthood, trying to find out who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. And then also facing like additional levels of discrimination because of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like where we live, there's an organization called Covenant House. Mm -hmm. And all they do is housing for youth and adolescents. And that organization has been in existence for as long as I've been here, so more than 20 years. And I would imagine that they are bursting at the seams because there will always be a need um, because for queer kids, oftentimes home is not a safe place. And so when you don't have a job because you're 14 or whatever, um, your options are extremely limited. And it's no wonder, and again, here in Toronto, um, the population of of folks who are experiencing homelessness is huge. And a lot of yeah. those folks are youth. 
yeah, like you see it every day here on the streets. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it also speaks to just like the inadequate amount of safe spaces, like extracurricular activities for, for kids, for queer kids, places that they can feel included. Mm-hmm. And hopefully Absolutely. that is changing, like, as you mentioned, like, as schools are becoming more inclusive and, and things like that. But yeah. yeah, I mean, things are changing and I think it's slow and I think that there's still a lot more work to be done. Um, yeah. So what I think is really interesting, sort of shifting away from youth in particular, but I do think that that's a really important topic and one that probably deserves a a lot more airtime. For many people, gay bars are symbolic and serve as a site of safety and community. And sometimes one of the only safe spaces that exist where you can truly show up and be seen and celebrated for exactly who you are in a world that doesn't celebrate you as you are otherwise. And you are othered through, you know, various points in your life or different areas or buckets of your life uh, where maybe you don't feel as safe to be seen and celebrated in the same ways. So I think it's really interesting that gay bars are this site of safety for us. And they're also a site where it's very normalized for substances to be consumed. Mm -hmm. And so we walk into these spaces and we are met with community and love and celebration and alcohol and other substances. And I think it becomes complicated because the two then become very enmeshed with each other and we have those strong associations of love and acceptance and belonging. And it also is heavily tied to drinking and other drugs. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up and brought up gay bars because it's actually something that goes back decades to, I think, being one of the original safe spaces for queer people to Mm -hmm. go and find community and it's something that over the years even in like my time of growing up and going to bars like that's something that my friends and i and like my queer friends and i have always like flocked there it's somewhere that Mm -hmm. gender women can feel safe like but yeah it's got such a heavy culture i think that is tied to alcohol use substances heavy substance use yeah so it's like Yeah, it's really hard because it's a space that is supposed to be safe and protective, but really, like, it's killing people in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated because I do think that all of the feelings associated with it, the feeling seen and feeling celebrated and feeling loved, all of that is real and genuine. And Mm -hmm. if you've moved through the world feeling othered and stigmatized and rejected and then those same parts of you are being celebrated in really significant ways of course you're gonna go there right you're gonna go there a lot and that was certainly my experience um and I also think there's this interesting so I wrote a piece for the progressive 
And if you want, I can like send it to you and you maybe can link it in the show notes if you want yeah, to. That would but be great. Um, there's this interesting convergence and like overlap of coming out. So according to the Pew Research Center, the average age for coming out is around 20 years old, which is also around the same time, whether you're in Canada or the US ish, mm-hmm. that we hit legal drinking age. And so coming out at the same time as legally being able to enter gay spaces, gay bars and gay spaces, it's just a really interesting overlap because both of these things, especially for queer folks, are rites of passage in a way, the coming out and the legally being able to drink. And then we enter into these spaces where you know, there's already heavy substance use at play. We're going into those spaces likely with an increased level of vulnerability. We've already experienced a lot more trauma. So we're already more susceptible or more prone to it. And then we get there and all these great feelings are happening and it's accompanied with highly addictive substances. And so I just, I just think it's, I just think it's very interesting. I feel like we need to have more conversations about it. We need more care so that by the time we enter these safe spaces that are actually really important as staples of our community. And as you say, like historically bars have been safe spaces, you know, when it was illegal to be gay, there were underground bars and speakeasies where queer folks would gather and build community together. And when we think of what we now know as like pride Toronto pride celebrations, those started as a, like a resistance movement Mm -hmm. at the Stonewall Inn in New York, Mm -hmm. you know? And so bar spaces are are really important symbolically and as physical spaces and I think we need to complicate them a little bit and like really examine what's going on within them and what we can actually do to maybe reduce some of the harm that's happening in them yeah and like is there value in creating other kinds of spaces as well yeah absolutely um That was actually something I wrote another piece for Sarah Cates online. Oh, yeah, some good clean fun. Yep. Um, And I talked to a bunch of queer people about what being a queer person in queer spaces looks like now as sober people compared to when we all drank or did other use of other substances. And they came up with so many great ideas that were focused on community and being together and celebrating, but not having those be so heavily steeped in substances. So I think, you know, there's a lot of really great ways that we can navigate this um, that are creative and community oriented and reduce the harm that comes with being in a heavily saturated um, environment of substances. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then one other thing that I love to talk about because it's such a huge problem. um, And I would love to hear your take on this as well as like a non-queer person, but as somebody who has queer friends and goes to queer spaces and all of that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. um, 
So I personally believe that alcohol companies target the queer community, particularly around pride. So you will see big floats, huge sponsorship packages that are put on by alcohol companies. Mm -hmm. So they find their way to like make it into various festivities. So this past year in Toronto for Pride, there were, I think, either seven or nine alcohol companies involved in sponsorship, which was an increase from the previous year. And I really think that the alcohol companies are, you know, um, inserting themselves into pride and into queer communities, not because they're celebrating us, not because they're advocates of diversity, but because mm -hmm. they know that we deal with substance use issues at higher rates and the most money is made off of the heaviest drinkers. And so I'm trying to really raise my voice and like challenge that and really name it when I see it happening because I think it's harmful and I think it's predatory and I think that we can do a lot better. Um, so I wanted to sort of drop that little <laughs> nugget yeah. and I would love to hear your take on that. Like, what are you seeing? What do you think about it as a sober person, as an ally? Yeah. And to be completely honest, it's not something that I have noticed, like in particularly with pride, but like mm -hmm. we talked about in our last episode, it's that pink washing, the green washing, it's all of these companies slapping on a rainbow flag right before pride yeah. month and saying, oh no, we've been here the whole time actually supporting you now buy our products all month. Yep. And I think it, it is unfortunate that the big alcohol companies are some of the ones with the deepest pockets. So they're going to be winning those bids and having the largest campaigns. And yeah, what you're doing by like creating the conversation and really speaking out against it is like we have to give people the information. And it, if you're not, I think, sober or in that community, you're not necessarily as aware of what's actually happening and how these companies are sort of trying to seep their way into all these other spaces. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I also think um, just like the normalization of alcohol and alcohol use and just seeing it everywhere and it being everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, I think when something becomes normalized, we stop questioning it. So it's become normal to go to a Pride event and just see huge, you know, sponsorship and um, imaging and marketing from alcohol companies all over the place. So and you wouldn't even... consumption by the people yeah. attending. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. And so I think because it's become so normalized, we don't even think to question it anymore, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I think conversations like this are so important because probably I'm guessing, you know, a lot of the folks listening maybe hadn't thought about it before, maybe didn't know that rates of addiction within the queer community are that much higher. And yeah. so I hope by having these conversations that maybe folks will start to just kind of see it a little bit more and like be able to recognize that something harmful is actually taking place and like something, yeah, that we should be talking about and working towards changing. Yeah, absolutely. And 
it's like w when you start to seek out the information, it's there. So like in preparation for today, I was doing my own research and I was seeing like surveys and statistics. One of them said that um, like queer adults are more than twice as likely as their heterosexual counterparts to use illicit drugs and almost twice as likely to suffer from a substance abuse disorder. And that was for everything on the spectrum. It was alcohol, it was drugs and even cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, you're right. The information is out there. And sometimes, and, and we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, um, it's not always the easiest to find and it can be confusing and the mm. message can be muddled because alcohol companies put a lot of effort into trying to conceal what's actually going on and trying to conceal the harm that's being caused by their products. And so sometimes you do have to do a little bit of digging to figure it out, but it is there. And I would encourage anybody listening to dig a bit and see what you come up with. Mm -hmm. um, because I do think, you know, knowledge isn't everything, but when I generally think when we have a bit more knowledge and we have a bit more insight, um, it can be really helpful in terms of reframing how we engage with substances or even being able to recognize what we're seeing when we're out in the world. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I guess my next question um, would be sort of about treatment and the recovery space like i'm trying to figure out how to like phrase this properly but i guess mm -hmm. i think that the support that queer people may need in that recovery space is going to be different than what someone like i may need so yeah. are there is there adequate support for the people who are wanting change Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question. And the short answer is no, not by a long shot. Um, so, you know, to your point, the needs and lived experiences of queer folks, and again, that's a diverse group of individuals. So mm -hmm. like a black trans woman is going to have a very different experience in life than me as a white cis queer woman. Mm -hmm. Um, and so her needs are going to be different than my needs. Um, and broadly speaking, a lot of programs just like don't factor diversity into the equation. And like queer people are kind of painted with one brush. Yes. Yeah. Largely, largely. Um, and so um, with that, when you walk into a space you want to know that whoever is there to support you in your healing and your processing can see all of you and can support all of you because all of the parts of my identity, all of the parts of all of our identities, and again, the more layers of diversity you add to it, the more unique our lived experiences are, but the more you, you know, Essentially, all of those parts of our identities factor into how we manage our lives, how we cope, how we deal with stress. And in many cases, parts of our identity, because we are outside of normative culture, create more mental health issues, more um, experiences of stress and trauma. And so if that is not taken into account, 
And if that's not truly understood, and it doesn't even have to be from a lived experience necessarily, because I think that there are lots of ways that we can care and understand um, and support one another without having the exact same experiences. But, you know, if we step into spaces where those parts of our identities are not understood and not seen and not cared for, that leaves a huge gap in care and treatment. And so um, there's definitely a lot of work to be done in that area. And that's one of the reasons why I specifically work with queer folks, because, and again, there's lots of queer folks who I wouldn't be a great fit for um, because it's not my experience, but um, that's, you know, part of why I work with queer folks because the care is just not where we need it to be. Mm-hmm. And if the care is there, there's wait lists, like it's it's not accessible for the majority of people. Yeah, that's right. That's a great question. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you are currently running. Uh, so before we started recording, we were chatting and you mentioned that you're currently running a sobriety coaching program, and you have another one coming up in January. What does that look like? Yeah, that is a great question. So it is an eight-week group coaching program for newly sober women, for sober curious women, and essentially it is an opportunity for them to get some coaching, learn some new tools, and to do it within the context of community and other women who are doing similar work. So the next round of the group coaching program starts January 2nd. Um, And yeah, for anyone interested in that, I would love to chat with you further. So you can definitely reach out. Yeah. And as always, I will have your website linked in the show notes so people can easily connect with you and find the details of that upcoming program. Perfect. Thank you. Of course. And yeah, I guess let's leave it there for today. I do want to say thank you one more time for coming on the show, bringing your wealth of knowledge. Um, I think that these conversations are so important to have. um, And I'm happy that we could connect and share the message. Me too. And I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. And thank you for inviting me back and and hosting this. Um, I think it's such a an invaluable tool for the community. And so I'm I'm happy to participate. And I think that this was a great conversation. And for anyone listening, um, if you learned something new here or if you found this to be interesting or helpful, maybe pass it along to somebody who might also learn something new or find something helpful. Um, I think collectively, the more of us who are informed and curious and passionate about what we're talking about, the greater the chances we have of creating change together. This is Keisha signing off on another episode of Done With Debauchery. If you liked what you heard, please share and subscribe. You can also find me at donewithdebauchery.com or follow along on Instagram at donewithdebauchery. Thanks for listening.